My name is Rob Verkirk. I am the founder, executive and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health International. I'm a sustainability scientist, a researcher and a campaigner. From a legal point of view, true informed consent means getting information on benefits as well as risks and also understanding what other options are available. One of the reasons we're involved in activism is because there are big food and pharmaceutical lobbies out there who sometimes manipulate science. And actually realize that there is an entire machine behind the government dealing with language and messaging in order to push certain emotional hot buttons. Let's hear each other's differences, not bury them. That way at least we'll be less likely to be exposed to lies, damned lies and manipulated statistics. Ever-growing number of us resist what's being thrown at us and we're going to continue to resist so we can reimagine a different view of a better future. So hello and welcome to another edition of Speaking Naturally. And you'll have noticed that um, sitting in the interview seat, um, we've had a slight change because this week, being Easter week, we've decided to put Rob in the hot seat, given the fact that he is a scientist and we've had a number of questions come in that we thought would be um, very useful for us to take this time when so many people are on holiday um, to just answer those questions. So welcome. And um, I'd like to introduce you um, to Dr. Rob Verkirk from a slightly different perspective than the one he's normally speaking from. So today I'm going to be putting a few questions to Rob on some of the topical issues that have really come to the fore about our current predicament. So we're going to be looking at um, some of the vaccine risks. Uh, we're going to look at vaccine passports and then also just touch on a few issues that have come up since the interview with Geert van den Bosch, immune escape, um, selection pressure and, um, and topics like that. So we're going to dive right in and um, I hope you enjoy. So Rob, welcome to this uh, edition of Speaking Naturally, where you're sitting in the hot seat for a change. How does it feel to be on the other side of the camera? Mel, it feels great, especially on this wonderful spring Easter morning. So I'd like to kick off just first off with a question. Um, you know that at ANH we've always been huge advocates of informed consent. And a year into the pandemic, where do you think we are on this? And perhaps um, for people who aren't quite so familiar with informed consent, could you just maybe explain what it is um, as well? Yeah, the, the principle of informed consent, it's, it's built into codes of practice in, in, you know, from medicine through to nursing. It's built into legal system in nearly every country. And it basically requires three elements. One is the provision of adequate information. And the other one is to have capacity, to have the mental capacity to make a decision. And if you haven't, other people have to make decisions for you. Um, and the third one, really important, is, is around coercion. And this is probably one of the most important issues we face right now because um, governments have repeatedly stated the fact that they're not going to indulge in coercion. And, and of course, um, what's tended to happen is that the marketing, advertising campaigns around vaccines have um, almost been a form of coercion, but rather cleverly, that coercion has been delegated to members of the public. So we, we now have a situation in which 
the coercion that many people are experiencing is actually coming from their family, from their friends, from their neighbors. Have you had your vaccine yet? Have you had your vaccine yet? And um, it's 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 a could be regarded, if you like, as a bit of a, a legal dodge. Um, and of course, one of the one of the other principles um, that we've got to be looking at is is that if you within informed consent is also the right for informed refusal, and this applies to any medical intervention, also applies to to diagnostic tests, which is equally relevant given that um, most of the options are around in order, particularly when we, when we I know we're going to be talking about vaccine passports in a minute, but um, when you're looking at the idea of um, certifying someone's COVID status, you have on one hand, um, you know, whether or not you've been vaccinated, whether or not you might have antibodies, which is something that tends to be discussed um, um, less, but, but also what your results are from a lateral flow or a PCR test. Um, so the, the, the critical part of all of that is that um, you shouldn't essentially lose privileges or rights in the process. And, and of course, we're seeing this massive diversity um, of views that's being expressed around the world. This is definitely a moving target all the time. Each day we see um, new outbursts, you know, um, we've seen DeSantis in, in uh, the governor of Florida saying absolutely not. Um, we've seen um, the uh, White House press secretary say yesterday, um, that um, they, even under the Biden administration, they would not want to see um, a federally approved certification system for COVID status. Uh, we've seen even the World Health Organization um, saying it. In contrast, you look at Ursula von der Leyen, in, president of the, of the European Union, going the opposite direction. And in fact, there's a little bit of conflict there because the green certification system that the EU is working on, the vaccine passport system, has been worked out in conjunction with the World Health Organization. So, you know, the right hand has been doing one thing, the left hand has been doing another. So um, it's, a, it's a, a, a very complex issue. So, Rob, um, I mean, the whole, pro the whole maxim around informed consent is obviously the word inform, which means that people need to be given a certain amount of information, don't they, in order to be able to become informed to make the decision to go ahead with something. And I, and I know that um, we've been talking about this for quite some time now, that a lot of that information is actually lacking. Well, it's always going to be lacking because we are living in a very uncertain world with a new disease um, with um, many contesting views on how best to interpret the limited amount of data around that disease. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 we, if you look at the situation around, um, for example, blood clots, um, thrombocytopenia, um, that is something that wasn't necessarily picked up. It wasn't picked up in, in the phase three trials that are also ongoing. It is emerging now in post-marketing surveillance data. Um, it was initially had a lot of cold water thrown on it because the view of the European Medicines Agency was, was that um, there was no evidence that the um, levels of these very specific blood clots in the brain 
was higher than the background level prior to the vaccination coming along. I'd like to, I'd like to just I'd like to just jump in here and say that obviously you're talking about the blood clots associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Correct, correct. So, um, and, and of course, we've seen a number of European countries now um, um, withdraw vaccination pending further data for particularly for women under the age of 55, because there seems to be an increased risk somewhere between one in 125,000 to one in a million, depending on which data you're looking at. And the the bottom line is that that is what seems to be emerging is 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 a new condition altogether. And and yet I, you know, just in this last week, I mean, obviously, um, we've known about this for some time. We're seeing we're seeing the reports trickling um, into the media now. We know that the UK has been um, standing up in defence um, because obviously it's Oxford and uh, and AstraZeneca. Um, the MHRA came out to say, no, 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 it's totally safe. But just even in this last week, with everything happening in the world, I still have friends um, who've been um, having their vaccine and they're not being given any of this information and they've been given the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes, uh, it, partly because the MHRA right now, as we speak, is is investigating the new data. Um, it, it actually does appear to be a very specific and very rare um, form of brain clot. It, it is um, it, a new name has been developed around it, which is catching on. It's uh, saying that it's not a particularly catchy name, if I can remember it correct. It is vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> VIPIT is the acronym, which uh, I think is a bit easy to get your t- your your tongue around. But the the most fascinating thing about understanding this new condition, as I mentioned, it's 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 very rare, but it's it is much more likely in women under fifty five. That could be because women were amongst a larger group that were vaccinated um, earlier on, um, but it's certainly been sufficient for a number of European countries to withdraw vaccination for women under fifty five for that reason. Um, but the, the most interesting thing is that it, it is related to um, a response in the blood platelets, the tiny little cells that are responsible for, for clotting. Um, and it does appear to be an immune reaction, which is why within the VIPIT acronym is this idea of it being an immune thrombocytopenia. So it is, in effect, an autoimmune condition. And you remember the the, the work we did looking at um, Yehuda Schoenfeld's um, research and the concerns that he had as, as one of the most uh, prolific um, researchers in the field of autoimmune disease um, was expressing a number of concerns because of particularly the, this idea of molecular mimicry, where there are some gene sequences that are identical in the spike protein um, as there are in the human genome. So if you get a reaction to the antigen um, and the body starts to lose this ability to to distinguish between self and non-self, it could start attacking itself. So um, this is perhaps the the earliest warning signal that we have of the potential for autoimmune disease. It's also a reminder that um, you're not likely to pick up any issues of autoimmune disease in the two months 
that were available before emergency authorization was granted. You're talking about the you're talking about the trials now. Yes, about the, the phase three trials. So that that you know the trials um, will go on for for months. And of course, typically we have seen a pattern of um, adverse reactions not being found in phase three trials, but being found in post-marketing surveillance data. So not only have we got a compressed time, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that was allowed before emergency authorization was granted, we also have trials that are still ongoing. So um, there is no substitute for the fact that these are experimental vaccines. And again, coming back to this idea of informed consent, um, that is certainly something we have a major concern about because that is not being adequately expressed to the public. It definitely isn't. And I think um, of greater concern as well is that um, when people are arriving um, to have their jab, they are being given paperwork but told, you know, I've even had um, a report of someone being told not to bother to read it because oh, if you read all of that information, you wouldn't want to have it. And, 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 you know, coming back to this idea of coercion as well, I'm, I'm wondering how many people have heard of the Behavioural Insights team and actually realise that there is an entire machine behind the government dealing with language and messaging in order to push certain emotional hot buttons, which is why you start to see, um, you know, an entire shift in the messaging all around this, where there is an awful lot of guilt and an awful lot of fear. I mean, in the car driving here this morning, um, I've just listened to one of the new adverts, which is now you know, again, making people very fearful um, of hugging anyone. I mean, having any human contact. And we see the hands, face, space um, and fresh air, you know, has, has come out. And, um, you know, the fact that, again, there's the guilt message in there that if you do go and hug one of your loved ones, you, you may be passing on COVID. Um, but, you know, there's an entire team sitting, devising, you know, all of this messaging, isn't there? Absolutely. I, I think the, the recognition um, among governments, I mean, the, the um, Jane Psaki, the, the White House press secretary that was saying that, you know, that they don't support a federal certification system for COVID status is because they're beginning to realise that if you have on one hand um, the idea of proving vaccination, as we see more and more mutant variants of concern circulating around the world, there's probably going to be less and less likelihood that we will have positive information on just how much um, transmission is reduced by that vaccination, which is obviously the key issue. Um, and um, if you look at some of the modelling studies that are being done at the moment, including the ones that are predicting a third wave, even during the Northern European summer, whether you're in Europe or the UK or, or, or the US, um, they will um, they're predicted to happen um, based on estimates that transmission even amongst the vaccinated population um, still may be uh, around about 30 percent um, so um, again huge numbers of question marks and, and of course when you look at um, certifying by status of your test for example if you look at international travel if you are tested at the outgoing airport and then you know, at the receiving airport. Um, what does that mean? And, you know, again, some of the key um, 
researchers in the field of diagnostic testing are reminding um, governments that um, as the prevalence goes down and down, of course, based on Bayes' theorem, and we released our yes. case demic um, piece on that, I think back in September um, 2020, um, the risk of false positives goes up and up. And it's going to be highly possible that we're going to have a situation where there are more false positives than there are true positives. Um, and that would be an unworkable situation scientifically. And to then restrict someone's ability to, to behave normally and have um, the same rights and privileges to go to venues and sports venues and entertainment venues and travel, for example, um, or to have to let your employer know um, exactly what your status is, is, is pretty inconceivable. So, um, so is it your feeling that we just need to hold our ground and all of this is going to start to come out in the wash and um, probably won't be workable? And again, if we can feel a little bit secure in the knowledge that, um, you know, the push that we're getting, a lot of it is to do with this coercion. Yes, I, I, th I think coercion is a particular problem around so much scientific uncertainty. The thing that probably bothers me most of all is that what has been demonstrated over the last 12 months is that um, we have, as a society um, and as societies, we have huge difficulty tolerating uncertainty. And um, the, the only thing we can be certain of is the uncertainty. And um, so it then becomes really problematic if you, in that climate of uncertainty, um, force people to you know, use one particular strategy when there's uncertainty over that and deny people rights and privileges if they don't accept that. So um, you know, my sense is we could be in a, in a much healthier situation with much less polarization in society if we allow the pieces of the jigsaw to just fall as they would naturally fall. Um, there are always going to be a, a very significant number of people who are going to want to have the vaccine. They're also going to have a significant, there's always going to be a significant number of people who are going to have concerns, who are going to be hesitant about the vaccine. I think that the, the difficulty now is that um, if you carry on forcing people to have the vaccine, not necessarily on a scientific basis, but because it's seen to be the right thing to do. Um, and you allow that push to come from people who don't have a lot of information. Um, you could create massive division. I mean, this idea of having, yes. you know, multiple tiers in society um, that discriminates, you know, also cultures and social groups that have had historically more of an issue around, you know, being used for experimentation, um, particularly when those same groups understand, seem to understand more, if you look at the dialogue that is going on amongst those communities, they understand more that this is an experimental vaccine, which governments try and, it's a discussion that governments seem to try to avoid very often. And the, and the data is not in yet, and we certainly don't have any long-term data. So, Rob, you know, it's a few weeks since um, Geert van den Bosch hit the headlines and um, caused a major ripple um, through the airwaves. So his proclamation regarding what he called immune escape, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of criticism on that. 
Um, so where are we now on sort of understanding the complexity of this host pathogen um, interaction? Well, um, we're a little bit further along. Um, you know, I, I think there is now um, a wider recognition. Um, I wrote a piece last week that looks, for example, the research of a very mainstream group, you know, Dr. Bianatz and, and his team um, at the Rockefeller University um, and the um, Howard Hughes Institute. Um, and of course, they are definitely raising the prospect that um, there is a reasonable chance that as we move forward um, with new variants of concern, that because the antigen is so highly specific, we've got to remember that the main vaccines that are around today were built from computer models based on the original sequencing that was done in January 2020. Mm -hmm. And the antigen has been created based on one specific part of the of the virus, which is the spike protein that, that binds to the um, uh, ACE2 receptors in, in the um, airways uh, and, and gets in that way, assuming the innate immune system allows it in. Um, so um, if you start to see variations, and of course the, the concern that... Um, Bianazza's group has, has shown is that um, the independently, if you look in, at the UK, South African and Brazilian variants, independently, there have been some shared mutations in common. So the, 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 the virus has been working ways around it. So um, it begs the question that we should be having broader approaches, not these highly specific approaches. We, if we um, have very highly specific approaches and that is the approach that we use, and this is one of the fundamental tenets that, that Geert van den Bosch is talking to, if you vaccinate vast numbers of people using a very highly specific antigen and you get immune escape, you can call it um, vaccine resistance as well. Um, you potentially have more problems. If you have a significant proportion of the population that um, has already been exposed to um, naturally acquired infection, it is likely that that kind of immunity that you get is has a broader base. It is polygenic because it is not just um, a response to the spike protein. It's also looking at the nuclear membrane and other aspects of that virus. So it's, it's a more complex form of immunity. And of course, um, the other part of the immunity that hasn't been um, talked about very much at all by governments that have been very focused on this sort of one egg in the basket strategy of vaccines, which um, we would argue is, is, a, is a dangerous strategy to have any, you know, any uh, unilateral strategy in the face of a, a, a virus that, that mutates. Okay, RNA viruses, this, this was the, the view, RNA viruses don't mutate very often, but we have to counter that with the opportunities for that low error rate to be expressed because of the sheer number of people that are being infected. So, you know, there is a reasonable chance that these mutations um, will continue. So um, we have to be looking at what's happening in the innate immune system. And, and here again, 
Um, it's very disappointing to see more and more efforts to try and shut down the, you know, any any view that, you know, natural health approaches, a good diet, um, healthy physical activity, ways of countering um, psychological, emotional, um, physiological stress, um, the use of um, vitamin D, vitamin C and zinc supplements. Um, that conversation is very much being shut down and, um, you know, we think that is absolutely the wrong thing to do in the face of what's happening at the moment. Otherwise, we will be more likely to see um, more resurgence in the future, more resurgence if that's measured by cases. And herein lies an, another problem. I mean, we have to, uh, we believe, stop talking about um, confusing cases of infection with cases of disease we really have to see a much clearer delineation between those two things because they're not the same. We've never done that for any other disease. No, and obviously immune resilience has actually seen the human race evolve to where we are today. Um, and to put all of that understanding down about how our bodies work. But we're also seeing um, the conversation about T-cells um, shut down as well. And obviously T-cells are about our long-term immunity. But um, you could take a, um, you know, a view that perhaps, you know, that is, uh, if you were looking from a cynical perspective, you could take a view that that is possibly because um, it would, uh, it would possibly hurt the vaccine um, efforts. Maybe also important to understand that the T cell immunity, the memory T cell immunity that we get from naturally acquired infection is, is somewhat different and more resilient compared with the memory T cell response that we get from the vaccine because it is so mono you know it's yes. so targeted around a very specific part um an antigen that's very specific to the spike protein so yes it, it's a it's a complex conversation it's changing all the time um diversity of approaches um and a tolerance for understanding the moving goalpost of information, I think would make a huge difference. Um, and of course, we also shouldn't forget some of the very fundamental work that people like Sunetra Gupta were talking to many months ago, that suggests that, you know, when probably around about 50% of a population have antibodies, whether these are developed as a result of naturally acquired infection or vaccination is, is a moot point because we don't know how different yet those two responses are in terms of long-term immunity. Um, but around about 50% of the population, um, then you would <clears throat> effectively just move to a, a circulating virus that, that's become endemic that will you know, occasionally rear its head, probably at the time when, when people are most vulnerable and the um, virus is most able to transmit, which appears to be for this particular virus during the winter months in, in uh, you know. So, no, so not unlike most colds and flu. Um, and obviously, cold, you know, 20% of colds are a coronavirus as well. So, Rob, just in closing, um, you know, is there a better way of doing any of this? What kind of exit strategy do you think makes sense with our current understanding? Um, well, you know, I, I, I think... Um, what would be very helpful, and I, and I think the the vaccine passport debate could potentially bring us to this place where 
because there's a recognition that you can't coerce people and because there's a recognition that vaccination does not give you confirmed evidence, doesn't give you 100% certainty or anything even close to that, that you will not transmit virus. It, it may take us to the point where um, there is a much greater tolerance for diverse strategies where um, you start to see a, a waning, and I think the thrombocytopenia debate um, will have that effect. As, as they are moving the vaccination through ever younger and younger people, um, there will be more people who are likely to say, you know, this is not for me, rather than targeting those people and creating more and more polarization in society to just allow the pieces to fall, as I mentioned earlier, the way that they would fall, which basically comes back to where we started in, on this particular discussion, to this idea of informed consent that includes informed refusal. And that might be to, um, to, to, to the diagnostic tests um, yes. for infection as, as well as particular treatments. But um, if we could see a, a smorgasbord of approaches that include those approaches that enhance immune resilience, which has been the foundations of, um, yes, in, in evolutionary terms, how we got this far, um, but it's also been the foundations of many systems of medicine. Most traditional systems of medicine uh, it includes many uh, more contemporary forms of medicine, including functional medicine, which is all about how you um, improve that immunity. So, and optimize and optimize. we could get that. So, Rob, diversity—that's definitely um, you know a, a huge subject, and we've we've talked on diversity many times, from food all the way through to lifestyle interventions. But I'd just like to um, come back to the, this notion of, you know, our, our evolutionary sort of progression and diversity and see whether you can give us a little bit more of an explanation about selection pressure, because um, I understand it's a real um, ecological term. Um, and obviously the pathogens that we're dealing with, and particularly viruses, uh, are very alive to selection pressure, aren't they? Absolutely. Um in ecological terms, and I speak now as an ecologist who, who's spent many years working in um, agroecosystems, um, and of course we we learned a lot about how we needed to diversify agroecosystems in order to create stability in that system um, by looking at complex natural systems like rainforests and coral reefs, for example. So um, essentially, the more complex, if you like, the food web system is within a natural ecosystem, the more stable it is. Um, and, and one of the ways of looking at this is, is for example, we, we look at agriculture and we look at, for example, the, the um, Midwest prairies of the United States. If you get a particular um, um, pathogen or an insect that comes in and is very well adapted to using that as a food source. Um, the simplicity of that system, if, if that particular herbivore, plant-eating insect, for example, is missing its natural enemy, um, and usually a complex of um, you know, trophic levels, different levels that feed on it that create stability there, um, 
that pest will rip through it and and um, and create havoc. Um, we very rarely see this within a complex um, system like a, a rainforest. You'll see all representatives, um, a huge diversity of organisms there, but they won't outstrip each other because population balance is maintained. And um, in some respects, this is not dissimilar to having a very, very highly you know, unilateral targeted single approach to a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2. Um, so if you just have one vaccine that is using a very specific antigen based on the spike protein, um, you run the risk that it will escape that particular strategy um, just because it mutates, it works its way around it, it outsmarts um, the approach that you've delivered. So you find yourself continuously in not a pesticide treadmill that you might find in your agricultural situation, but say in a vaccination treadmill. So if you have a more diverse strategy that is looking at um, um, a polygenic you know, approach that may include um, a more diverse um, repertoire of antibodies, it would also include um, a highly uh, competent innate immune response, you actually have got more mechanisms that you're targeting and controlling the growth of, of, of those virus populations that will, you know, be very keen to get into the body, take over the replication machinery in cells. And of course, it's if they do that very rapidly and you get a lot of replication, you also have a much higher viral load. You also have um, more opportunities for mutations to occur, more opportunities for transmission, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to, this has be, really been what's missing. So could it be said that having diverse strategies and a very resilient immune system um, shuts down uh, or it limits the selection pressure then, does it? Um, so it, 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 it stops the mutation. Correct. So, so the, you know, the selection pressure in terms of the, um, the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic example if that is only coming from a vaccine, that is the only target you're using, there is a greater chance that, that you know, and, and we know the, the, the evidence that, that the virus is able to um, develop mutations around that, that, that um, you know, we, we will see um, examples of viruses that, that uh, for which the vaccine will be less effective. And it won't, it won't be binary from 100% to 0%, it will be less effective. And also, if you allow more opportunities for mutation to occur before the whole thing has calmed down and become part of the endemic population of respiratory pathogens, um, you also run the risk that one of these mutations could actually be more virulent, um, not just more transmissible, or not just more transmissible to, to younger and younger people. So the longer you maintain this pressure, and you maintain lockdowns that actually, if you like, breeds mutations, as um, um, Dr. Witkowski was saying in our interview last week, um, the greater those kind of long-term problems, which is why um, it's become very politically incorrect to talk about allowing um, the, um, the, the virus to, to run through the population, but in effect, that's what all viruses do do. And that is what ends up bringing this 
diverse range of polygenic responses that eventually quell that relationship until it's just part of the circulating population of respiratory viruses. So again, we come back to, um, you know, pause, sit tight, gather information, um, feed your body, support your immune resilience. Yeah, and um, tolerate uncertainty, be more tolerant of, of diverse views. I think this is another um, major, yeah, major concern that, that we all have, is that if you try and shut down discourse, scientific discourse, at a time when there is so much uncertainty, you're less likely to find workable solutions for the future. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, which is one of the reasons that we're having the, these speaking naturally discourses. Absolutely, because we are all individual and one size has never fit all. That's, uh, that is, that's, really, that's really good news. And for everyone watching, we will put the links um, in the description underneath um, for the articles that we've discussed, that we've referenced, um, and extra information that we've written in the past that will just in, enhance your understanding and uh, allow you to make more of an informed consent and an informed decision. Rob, thank you very much for your time today. Much well, thank uh, you. Ne next time you do this, you'll be uh, you'll be sitting back in um, in your familiar seat again. But thank you very much for being in the hot seat today. Thanks, Mel. Bye bye.